All right, there we go. Take your Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. This morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 of John's epistle. I want to invite you to stand to your feet as we read this passage together. John, 1 John, excuse me, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may, may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for this ancient text that has such uh, relevant meaning. Uh, Father, these words are uh, words meant to examine us. Uh, Father, to inspect us, to shine a light on our hearts. And I pray, Father, that we would uh, be open to that, that, Father, we would allow the Spirit to uh, convict as well as to convince us of Christ, of all that he has done, and of our eternal salvation. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together. We thank you for the privilege and the openness and the freedom we have to simply to open up the word of God and to proclaim it uh, with freedom, without fear. I pray, Father, that our freedom uh, would not result in, in a sense of uh, familiarity to the point that uh, we just kind of brush over things that we've heard too often without allowing them to sink in and uh, touch our hearts. So I pray, Father, give us ears to hear a fresh new word from an old text. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to talk to you about uh, saving faith, asking the question, what is saving faith? Well, when I was in my early teens, I, I uh, was at a church, my whole family was there, together we walked the aisle, I prayed a prayer, and I was even baptized. There was just one problem with all of that, and that's that I did not know Jesus. It seems that for, for many people, saving faith consists of something similar, of, of basically saying a prayer, of believing some information, of, of simply making a decision to try to avoid the consequences of hell, but when you examine the lives of these supposed converts, you see no affection for Christ. You see no inner real life transformation. 
The late D. James Kennedy said, quote, the vast majority of people who are members of churches in America today are not Christians. And I say that without the slightest fear of contradiction. I base it on empirical evidence of 24 years of examining thousands of people. Before that, A.W. Tozer said it like this, it is my opinion that tens of thousands, if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by accepting Christ, and yet they have not been saved. I was one of those numbers. In fact, it's really nothing that is new. Uh, it's something that has been in existence all the way into the times of the New Testament. The New Testament gives us many examples of false converts. Jesus himself talked about the wheat and the tares. They grow up in the same field together. Now, a tare looked exactly like wheat. By the eye test, you could not tell them apart. And so the difference would come down to basically the issue of fruit. True wheat produced grain, and the false looked like wheat, but it was just simply a big, giant weed. No fruit. Along the same lines, Jesus spoke of the wheat and the chaff, where the wheat was harvested, was taken to a place called the threshing floor. It was either hit with a stick that was called a winnowing fork, or it was trampled by a heavy sled pulled by an ox in the the idea was to separate the wheat from the chaff, and then the wind would come, and the wheat would, because it was heavier than the chaff, would settle at the bottom of the threshing floor, and the chaff would simply blow away. Jesus said concerning that illustration in Matthew 3.12, his renowning fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus also gave a parable about the sheep and the goats. The difference was seen in the heart between the two. The sheep were those who loved Jesus and proved it by loving the least of these. And so three different times and three different illustrations, Jesus himself talked about those who appeared to be truly converted, but in fact were not. You continue through the story of the New Testament and you get to the book of Acts and then you find the story of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. Simon, we are told, was a magician and he was called by, I guess, probably self-appointed title that he was the great power of God. But we are told that he heard Philip preached the gospel in verse 13 says, and I quote, this is Acts 13 and verse 8, Simon believed and was baptized. But then you continue to read, and we're told that Simon uh, began to notice the giftedness of the apostles, and he was so impressed with their supernatural abilities that he tried to purchase, to buy the Holy Spirit. Apparently he did not have the Spirit himself. And Peter said to him, Your heart is not right before God. And your heart is full of bitterness and 
sin. The Apostle Paul himself had false converts in his ministry team. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he mentions someone by the name of Demas who deserted him because he was, quote, in love with this present world. And so because it's possible to fool ourselves into thinking we are saved when we are not, Paul said this in first, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Peter said something in, actually very similar in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. That's your salvation. For if you practice these qualities, and he gave a list of things that designate the true believer, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're told to test ourselves, to examine ourselves, to be diligent to confirm our calling and our election. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to heed these instructions and we're going to allow the Word of God to examine us or to be a light that we might examine ourselves by. But before we do that, I think it's very important that we need to keep something very important in mind. We need to practice what Robert Murray McShane suggested when he said this, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ because it is a dangerous thing to evaluate yourself based upon your own performance without looking at Christ's performance on your behalf. There is a way for us to look at ourselves, to examine ourselves, but we must do so through the lens of the gospel. We must do so by the light of Christ. Because I'm willing to bet pretty much anything that if we all do look at ourselves based upon our own evaluation of what we find within ourselves, that we would all have good reason to doubt our salvation. Probably every one of us. Because we will all, we have the tendency, we will all evaluate ourselves according to the law. And when we do that, we cannot help but fail. So instead, we must look through the lens of the gospel. It's only through looking through the lens of the gospel by which we must examine ourselves if we are to have the assurance and the hope that the Bible provides. And so, to do that, we are going to turn here to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And we're going to see in this passage what, what I'm calling marks of true conversion, signs of true conversion, however you want to put it. Uh, the marks of true conversion is how I'm wording it this morning. And so the first one that we see in the passage is that the true convert is one who wages war against sin. The true convert wages war against sin. 
John refers in verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He begins by calling his recipients of his letter, my little children. He uses that phrase six times in five chapters. Uh, it's one of his favorite phrases that he refers to his, his church, the people that he has seen come to Christ through his ministry and, and are part of these churches in which this letter is written. It is a term of endearment, my little children. When John writes this, he's, he's a very old man. And, and he writes this letter as a seasoned saint. Right? He has a lot of skins on the wall. He's been through a whole lot. And, and he sees himself as a spiritual father. He is a champion of the faith. And as a spiritual father, then he sees his, his people, his disciples, as as my little children. The Apostle Paul saw himself in the exact same way. In 1 Corinthians 4.15, he says this, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. <laughs> This sets the tone, and we need to, to hear the tone. You ever get, you know, people when you have text messages, and then you find yourself maybe being offended by a text message because you assume a specific tone went with the words? Well, that's easy to do even here when we read the scriptures. And so right from the bat, when he says, my little children, you get the tone. You get the feel. This is, this is compassionately written. This is written with a heart of love. John wants us to know that we are saved. He wants us to know that we know Jesus. And that's his heart. He's not going, well, let's see if you pass this test. Because some of you, I don't think you're going to. You know, it's not that kind of attitude. It's one of, of incredible Tenderness, tenderness. So, so we can't read this in a tone of anger or harshness, but only through gentleness. My little children. So one of the signs of our salvation, according to the scriptures, is that when we are saved, we are no longer slaves to sin. Uh, sin no longer has mastery over us. In fact, Romans 6, verses 12 through 14, the Apostle Paul said it like this, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Now when he says that sin shall no longer be your master, he's not saying that we won't struggle with sin. Uh, the whole thing is written in, in that kind of context of going, do not let sin reign, therefore uh, it also gives the opportunity that we can let sin reign. 
And, and so he says, no, don't do that because you are now positionally in a place where sin does not have mastery over you. You are no longer under the law, but you are under grace. The law makes demands upon us, but it does not provide the power nor the equipping to fulfill those demands. As a result, then the law only condemns us. It cannot, it cannot save us. But grace, on the other hand, empowers us to do what the law cannot do. And that is why we must examine ourselves in the light of grace, because if we don't, we have the tendency to gravitate towards the law, and the law always condemns us. And so when we're examining ourselves and we got the law in place, then we feel, even from ourselves, self-condemnation. And so while we will never be sinless in this life, the promise of the gospel is that we can sin less. God has given us everything we need to battle against sin. Everything. Because uh, the true believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling within, we, we can never, ever be comfortable again with our sin. Sin's not quite as fun as it used to be. Because the Spirit convicts us. That's one of the things about being a Christian, is you used to be able to sin, and maybe you felt guilty about it, especially if you got caught. But as a believer in Christ, when you sin, the Holy Spirit is like, you know that was wrong, right? The Spirit convicts us. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's a bad thing if you don't have any conviction. So John, like a good father, he, he sees sin as that which is harmful to the children of God. And because he, he loves them, he seeks the best for them, right? Just like you do if you're a parent for your own children. You want the best for them. You want to warn them against things that will harm them. The father, there's no father worth his salt that lets his children play out in the middle of a busy street. right? And what spiritual father would be worth his salt if he is allowing us to play in the viper's den with sin? And so, of course, John, as a, a loving father, is going to, to deal with the sins or the potential sins of his people, of his children. Right? We may be a, a Christian, but to be a Christian is to be at war. We are at war. The moment you accept Christ, you enter into a war. You're at, at war with the world. You're at war with the devil who is out to destroy your faith. And you're at war within yourself, with our flesh, with the, what the Bible calls our old man. And because sin is so deadly to our souls, we're not told to simply kind of shrug it off or, or try to do better. We're told to deal with sin severely. In fact, we're told to kill it. To kill it. Romans 8.13 says it like this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
And then Paul in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So we're not to manage our sin. We are to kill it. It's a call to put sin to death, which is a call to not take it lightly. To, to not say, well, you know, at least I'm not doing that. At least I'm not as bad as old so-and-so. We must see sin for what it is, and sin is out to kill us. It is our mortal enemy, the enemy of your soul. The, the flesh, or the old man, is the enemy of God. Our old self, that's the self that we have crucified with Christ. And therefore, any remnant of that that just kinds to be like a zombie in our lives and rise back to life, we must put to death. We must kill it. We must mortify our sin. We're to give our sin no quarter. We're to give our sin no mercy. We do not treat our sin with sympathy. Right? We don't make excuses for it. Right? We don't give our old self compassion. No, we're to kill it dead. To kill it because it aims to kill us. We are at war. Somebody's going to win that war. Who is it going to be? Are you going to allow your sin to kill you or are you going to kill it first? We have to show it no mercy. If you show it mercy, it will rise up and it will kill you. It will never show you mercy. That's our sin nature. And so we must fight against it. The gospel tells us that when we are saved, that we have died with Christ. So positionally speaking, our, our old sin nature is dead. And yet it still haunts us. It still haunts us. So we don't wage war on our sin in order to make ourselves right with God. We wage war against our sin because Christ has done everything to empower us to be victorious over it. And so we want to honor him. Which brings me to the second mark of a genuine salvation, which is taking our sin... To Christ. Take it to Christ. Notice what he says in verse 2. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, the grammar here in the Greek is very kind of interesting because it says this. If you were to read it as it was written in the Greek text, it, it could literally be rendered, if anyone sins, and you're going to. If anyone sins, you better believe it, it's coming. Right? He, he, it's not like, we don't want you to sin because that's possible, but if anyone does happen to sin, no, it's going, we don't want you to sin, but you're going to because you're in a war. Now, one of the ironies <coughs> excuse me, of spiritual growth I think is this, is that the more uh, we, we mature in our faith, the more we mature 
the greater realization we have of our darkness. The more we see our sin. Right? That's what walking in, in the light does. Right? When you walk in the light, the closer you get to the light, the more we see our own darkness right? in our, within ourselves. And so when, when we grow in our maturity, right, we have the, a, a more sensitive awareness to our own brokenness. We become much more sensitive to our sin. John Owen said it is like a man with a numb leg. John Owen uh, was, a, was a great Puritan thinker. Uh, man, he was rich in what he said. He said, you know, it's, it's like a man with a numb leg when he receives uh, cuts and wounds on that numb leg. He, he doesn't feel anything. Therefore, he doesn't even notice. Within one day, his leg is healed and the numbness is, is gone. And now all of a sudden he feels everything, and, and now because his leg has been numb for so long, everything that he feels, he feels with even greater intensity than he would have if his leg had never been numb before. And he says that's what happens in the Christian's soul. Before Christ saved us, we were numb. In fact, we're dead and our trespasses and sins. But we were numb to sin, and therefore we were numb to the effects of sin. We hardly even noticed it. But now that we have been healed by Christ, we feel our sin with much more sensitivity and awareness. One of the reasons we struggle, I think, with doubts about our salvation is because we are more acutely aware of our sin. That's what we find in, in, in John, or excuse me, Romans 7, when, when Paul's going, why? Why? Why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? And why? Why don't I do the things I know that I should? How wretched man that I am. That, that, that's Paul with the sensitivity to his sins. Right? One of the reasons we struggle is because we have that. That's a good thing. But that sensitivity and that awareness of our sin does not drive us to self-despair. It drives us to Christ. We take our sin to Christ. And look what happens. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We're new people. We take our sin to Christ, and when we do, we recognize that he has dealt with it. And we are these, these whole new creations. Now, you may be a little curious about the, the, the picture I've I've chosen all the way through this. You know, you're going to get about four or five of these pictures of this, this ship. Uh, basically, it's a picture that I found. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, man, that's gold. That's gold. What an illustration, because what it is is an old shipwreck off the coast of Melbourne, Australia. And this ship has been obviously abandoned for years. It's a bucket of rust but it has become the home of a small forest 
that's teeming with life. And so I was like, oh, what, a, what an incredible picture. Man, what a great analogy of who we are in Christ as followers of Jesus. Because we still have the, the old nature, right, that was crucified with Christ. We still have that old nature that we're battling against, right, that, that rusty, dead shipwreck of a life that used to be us. But now we have a new life in Christ. We are a new creation. And so we have this, this life growing within this old deadness that we used to be. That's us. That's us. That's what we look like. And one of these days, the ship will be completely eradicated. And all that will be left is the life. But I think one of the things that we have the tendency to do when we examine ourselves is is we look at ourselves and that's what we see, but we have the tendency to zoom in on the ship. We have the tendency to not see the life, to not see the newness, but to focus in on the oldness, that which is dead. And therefore we're discouraged because we continually focus on the wrong thing. Right? That's the illustration that, that I see when I look at that ship. John uses a different one altogether. He, he wants us to imagine a courtroom is his illustration. He says, you know, imagine you're in a courtroom. Our sin guilt has brought us before the supreme tribunal of God, and we must all appear before his judgment seat. And we stand there before God, our judge, and we have no excuse. And we stand there condemned before a holy God. And then an advocate comes up and stands beside us. The Greek word for advocate here is the word perikletos. It means one who comes alongside. Isn't that awesome? One who comes alongside. We're standing there and we have an advocate who comes and stands beside us. Elsewhere, John uses that same word to describe the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes up alongside of us. He is our divine comforter. The word is, is used, the reason he uses that word is because it was used in ancient times to describe how in the sea, especially in the Sea of Galilee, when the storms would come, that there would be these large boats, these paracletoses that would come alongside of the small boat and literally would tie itself to the small boat so that when the storm came and it was tossed by the sea and the wind and the waves, that that boat would be secure. And that's the, the picture we have here, that, that we are this small boat being tossed by the, the devil, by the world, by our flesh, but we have an advocate, we have a paracletos who has come alongside of us. It's keeping us secure. The difference between the believer and the non-believer is not that the believers don't sin. That's not the difference. It's what we do with our sin. That's the difference. We wage war against it. We seek to kill it. But even though we once and are promised 
to win the war in the end, we still sometimes lose the battle, don't we? And this is where the real difference between the believer and the unbeliever is seen because the unbeliever feels bad about, they may feel bad about their sin, they may not, but instead of running to God, they hide from God. Just like Adam and Eve did. They try to cover it up. Or they try to balance the scales back in their favor. The believer, on the other hand, runs straight to Jesus. Take the sin to Jesus. John says he is our advocate. He is for us. He is not ashamed of us. His heart is intermingled with our own. We are united to him. We are tied to him. He comes alongside of us in the storm of God's wrath, and he keeps us secure. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which hopefully you have read. If not, I think we have some copies still. You better read this book. It's just good for your soul. He says in his book, it is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. Think of, think of this in terms, uh, again, of, of being a parent. Think of your, your, your children or perhaps your grandchildren. Right? Think of it like this. You have warned them a hundred times, don't touch the stove. After I cook, it's very hot, you will get burned, don't touch the stove or you're going to get burned. Sure enough, one day, curiosity wins out. They come up, touch the burner. And then they come crying to you in pain. They don't go hiding from you, they run to you in their pain. Now as a parent, what are you going to do in that moment? Are you going to spank them? Are you going to spank them and say, what you, I told you not to touch that. Maybe it's time for a good lecture, because that's always helpful. Give them the, the old, I told you so. What did I tell you would happen? And look what happened. Huh. Of course not. What are you going to do? You're going to embrace them. You're going to comfort them. You're going to anoint their wound. You're going to bandage their hand. And that's what God does to his children and with his children when we come running to him. He doesn't go, man, I gave you my word. I've given you all of this stuff. You obviously uh, didn't obey it, so you get what you get. Of course not. He is our father, and when we come to him, even when we have disobeyed him and we suffer because of that, he still loves us and he comforts us. John calls Jesus, he calls him the righteousness. You see that in the passage? Jesus Christ, our righteousness, the righteousness. He's reminding us that we are not saved according to our own righteousness, right? But the righteousness that has been imputed unto us through Christ, that his perfect record is credited to us. Jesus is our righteousness. Notice the second word he uses. He says that Jesus is our righteousness. He's also our propitiation. Now, it may be a new word to you. It's a theological word. You need to be familiar with this word. 
is an important word. It basically means this, that Jesus atoned for our sins by appeasing the wrath of God towards us. Really unpopular today in a lot of theological circles, right? I don't understand why that's unappealing to people. Because they don't want God to ever be able to be mad. I'm glad God gets mad at sin. How could you look at this world? How could God look at this world and see the injustice and see some of the evil and go, well, well, thank God he gets mad. Thank God God gets mad. (laughs) Right? What that says, though, is that in Jesus Christ, I said this before, it's so important for us to know, is that in Jesus Christ, God is not mad at you. He's not mad at you. John says Jesus is our propitiation. He doesn't just say that he provided it. He said that he is that. He bore the wrath of God himself in our place. I think a great visual for this is the time that Jesus calmed the storm. I love that story. Jesus calms the storm. Remember the disciples, they're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. The storm hits them with full force. Man, these are experienced fishermen, and yet they're terrified for their lives. Jesus is woken from his nap. He stands up, and what does he say? Peace. Be still. And everything goes calm. Everything goes calm. That's propitiation. God's anger is made calm towards us. We go from the storm to the peaceful sea. Everything changes in Christ. So while every inclination within us tells us that God is mad at us because we have sinned and we desire to, in our heart of hearts, we just kind of want to run, right? We think to ourselves, man, right now I just want to stay clear. I'm going to stay clear from God. I'm going to get as far away from Him as I can, right? I'm going to stop going to church for a long time. I'm going to... You know, it's going to probably affect my prayer life, but I don't, you know, I just, everything's bad between me and God. That's the sinful nature. That's Satan talking to you. Because the gospel says, no, kill that inclination and make a beeline to your merciful Father who wants to embrace you, who wants to be your advocate the one who is your propitiation, run to Christ. Run to Christ. We're also told, he says, that this is not only true for our sin, he says, but it's true for the sins of the whole world. Isn't that good news? It's not just for us, it's for everybody. I I, I think when we hear that kind of thing, when it says, well, and this is true not only for you, but for the whole world, You know, that's the call that we have to to share that good news. But I think sometimes when we hear that whole world kind of language, we get lost in that because we don't see ourselves as world changers, right? We, We support the world changers, but we're not one. But what would happen if we heard this not as the whole world, but if we heard it as your whole world? Your whole world your circle of influence. 
right? your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. This word is good news to them in your world. Because here's what would happen if every believer sought to reach their world collectively, we would reach the entire world. All right, let's consider a third mark, a third mark of true conversion, and that's simply obedience to Christ. Obedience to Christ. I'm kind of looking at that picture, and it seems like the force is really starting to take over, isn't it? That old ship. Obedience to Christ, verse 3 and 4, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, the order here is very important. The order in which John writes is incredibly important, because before he gets to keeping Christ's commandments, right, he reminds us that Jesus is our advocate and our propitiation. So John wants to make sure that we look at our obedience through the lens of Christ's finished work first. Right? Tim Keller put it like this. He said, uh, the salvation order is not I obey, therefore I am saved, but always I am saved, therefore I obey. The word know here, right? and by this we know that we have come to know him. The word know here is, is the word gnosko. One of my favorite words to say, right? gnosko, because gnosko means, in the Greek, that we know him relationally, as opposed to another word, oida, which means to know rationally. So this one is gnosko, meaning that we know Christ relationally, not just rationally. The sign that we actually have a relationship with Jesus is that we do what he tells us to do. We obey him. Right? We know him. We know because we know him, we obey him. Now, let me tell you how that works. Right? If we know him, that means we know that he loves us and that we know that he has the very best intent for our lives and thus everything he tells us to do is going to be for his glory and our good. We know that. And so obeying him is not a burden, right? He's not like some slave master that's going, follow the rules. No, everything that he tells us to do is for our joy and his glory. And, and, and because we know him, we want to please him. Right? 1 John 5, 3, I, I've noticed going through this how many times I, I, I quote from the same book. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. What makes His commandments burdensome is when we approach them as something that we have to do in order to earn His acceptance. What makes them not burdensome is because we do them for someone who loves us wildly and freely and we just want to obey we must be sure that we know the difference in obeying him in order to be saved and obeying him because we are saved huge difference 
Obedience is never the root of our salvation, but it is always the fruit of our salvation. Obedience. To say we know him, and yet we have no intention whatsoever of following him and obeying him just proves that we don't actually know him. He says that you are a liar if, you, if that's you. The truth is not in us. You may know him rationally, right? The truth of him may be outside of you, but it is not in you. Jesus said the same thing himself. Look at these verses, John 14, 15. If you love me, this is Jesus, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says it again in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And then Matthew. Matthew says the same thing. Jesus speaking here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then again, in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's a total contradiction. If you say that he's Lord, then that means you do what he says. Right? If he is Lord, to say that he is Lord is the same thing of saying, you're my king, you're my leader. That means that my allegiance is completely to you. And then you don't do what he says. Well, then there's an incredible contradiction there, isn't there? There, there is where someone right here, though, uh, I don't know if anybody here is doing this right now, but there's always someone. And maybe you, you kind of have a little time to think about it. And someone always comes up with this. Ah! You say that obedience follows genuine salvation. What about the thief on the cross? Someone always comes up with that one. Because you go, well, I mean, what did he obey? He was obviously saved. He didn't obey. He didn't do anything. He just hung there right well here's the thing i answered this with simply this is that the thief on the cross did obey christ in the only way that he could right he repented he repented at one point we read in the gospels that he scoffed jesus right along with that other thief they were both talking trash to jesus both of them at some point, listening to what Jesus said, watching him die, seeing Jesus die with nothing but love, even for his enemies, he changed his mind, which is what the word repentance means. He changed. He said, when you come into your kingdom, remember me, right? Well, if he said, when you come into your kingdom, what is he admitting? You're the king. You must be the king. The guy in the middle cross is the king. Right? What an incredible revelation that would be. So obviously this guy made a, a, a total 180. And he repented. 
So the thief on the cross is not an exception to the rule. Matt Carter is a pastor of, of a church in Austin, Austin Stone Community, Community Church. And, and uh, I, I read uh, this, this thing that he does, and I, it was kind of, uh, I don't know, it was kind of just shocking for a minute, because he applies the same truth when he hires staff people to the church. He said this, when I am participating in an interview with someone, we're thinking about adding to our church staff, I let others ask the detailed questions, and I ask only one question of the candidate, one question. I ask him or her, quote, when was the last time the thought of the gospel made you weep? If the person we're interviewing can't answer the question, I simply won't hire him or her. Why? Because I've realized there is a direct connection between a person's love for Jesus and that person's obedience to him. It's the same thing Jesus said. When we're saved, the Bible says that we are given a new heart, right? We're given a, a brand new heart, a heart of flesh. The sign of that new heart is that we have affection and love for Jesus. We have new affections for him. We treasure him. We desire him. We long to please him. True conversion changes our want-tos. Right? Now we want to obey the Lord. It's no longer a have-to. Have-to is law. Want-to is gospel. He says that the person who is truly converted, uh, converted will, will keep my commandments. Uh, I, I read the other day something fascinating that, that in 1 John, there are somewhere around 2,500 words that make up the letter. And yet, there is only 300, around 300, a little over 300 actual vocabulary words. Which means that he keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again. And so you see a lot of these vocabulary words repeated. He has his favorites. And one of those words is the word keep. Keep. He says it over and over and over again. The word keep, which John uses here in the Greek, it means to keep a close watch on. It, it means that it's like uh, this guard, uh, this priceless treasure uh, or maybe a piece of art that is something that you heavily guard, that, that you keep from allowing thieves to steal it from you because it's so precious. And so he says, those who keep my commandments is to hold the commandments of Jesus as precious, as valuable, as exquisite. Something that you must guard. Something that you, you keep watch on. That's something that you hold in the highest esteem. And you go, man, that's a, that's a lot. What, what, what do all those commandments consist of? John Piper uh, reissued a book that he wrote years ago, and this time it, the title is All That Jesus Commanded. All That Jesus Commanded. 
Right? He based it on this passage, all that Jesus commanded. Well, what are those commands? And, and, and I haven't bought the book, but I, I noticed that it was 500 pages long. 500 pages of all that Jesus commanded. Luckily for us, John likes to narrow things down. And he narrowed them down for us quite a bit. And he put the commandments of Jesus into one verse. 1 John 3.23. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And that we love one another just as he commanded us. Well, that makes it easier, doesn't it? Believe in Jesus and love one another. Trust Jesus Love one another. That's what saved people who have the Holy Spirit within them. That's what we do. That's what we do. We treasure, we treasure Christ and we treasure one another. And, and we treasure this commandment. This commandment. We treasure that. We, we go, man, that I'm going to guard, I'm going to keep that. I'm going to guard that. I'm going to consider that as, as precious, as incredibly valuable. I'm going to build my life around it. We live by faith and we live by love. That sums it up. So the true believer seeks diligently to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, to to treasure, to keep his commandments. Let's consider just one more mark, at least for this week. At least for this week. We'll expand next week. The fourth mark of genuine salvation that we see in this passage is that the true believer has communion with Jesus. We have communion with Christ. Look at verse 5 and 6. But whoever keeps his word, there's a word again, keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So Jesus uses the word keep. There it is again, right? It's one of his, John, excuse me. It's one of his favorite words. And so he uses it again. This time it is applied to his word. Again, right, he means to to keep guard over, to regard as precious, as valuable. And the, the believer in Christ loves the word of God, treasures the word. And it's a treasure trove of of life and wisdom and worship. It tells us all about our Jesus. It tells us about the one who is the lover of our souls. It is is God's love letter to us. Deb and I, uh, we dated back in high school. And uh, we wrote each other these gooey love letters. They were so embarrassing, right? These gooey love letters back in the day, and I had a box at home. It was this old wooden box, and I and I and I put them in there, and then I would take it and shove the box up in the top of my closet. And it's because those love letters, man, I treasured them, right? And I guarded them both. I treasured them, I guarded them. Well, and that's what the, the believer does with the word of God. Right? We go, oh my God, this is God's word to me concerning his love. Psalm 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The lover of Jesus doesn't treat his word like it's a textbook 
right? But it's a love letter, and you read it over and over and over. Can't get enough. When we keep his word, notice what he says. John says, when you keep his word, when you guard it, when you treasure it, the love of Christ, the love of God is perfected in us. The aim of keeping his word is to have the love of God perfected in you. It's not to, you know, become a, a, a scholar per se. It's to, to be loved deeply and to love Christ deeply as well. John is not saying that God's love is not perfect and needs to be perfected. It's not what he's saying. He's saying that our experience of his love is not perfect and needs to be perfected in us, right? And that happens when we allow the word to abide in us, to abide in us. That's the word he uses. Abide means to commune, right? To be attached to, like a vine on a branch. Abiding allows the life of Jesus to be poured into us. First, or excuse me, John chapter 15. John just, there's things that are so similar to his gospel and I know this is, is hard to read. Let me read it to you. I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus talking. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit, for apart from me he can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, uh, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and show and prove that you are my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as if I kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that your joy, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So the true follower of Jesus has this ongoing relationship with Jesus where we're allowing his word to get inside of us. And we are conversing with him in prayer and in the word. Includes abide. That's what it means to abide in his love. And when we abide in his love, we become fruitful. And we are filled with joy. That's how it works. John in his letter says it like this. That, that we walk, when we walk with him, we begin to walk like him. And he says, whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. And the key there is not that we go, okay, all right, I'm going to read the Gospels, I'm going to see the way Jesus lived, and then I'm going to you know, ask the question, what would Jesus do? And then I am going to do that. That's not what he's saying. The key here is abiding. He says, if you abide, if you commune, then this will be the result. You don't have to worry about trying to accomplish the result. You abide in Christ and it will happen. And the more you do so, the more you begin to walk like him. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to fail at this consistently. But we will progress slowly. We will. 
So John's aim in this letter is not to scare us and it's not to make us doubt our salvation. He wants us to be confident and he wants us to be assured. And I want that for you as, as well. Er, earlier I quoted Robert Murray McShane, his great quote, right? For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. That quote is found in a letter that... Uh, McShane wrote to someone who was struggling with security of salvation. Someone who was doubting their salvation. So I want you to listen to it. I want to put it back now in the context of his letter. This is what he said. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's a quote from Jeremiah. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace for all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room left for folly or for the world or for Satan or for the flesh. Do you hear what he's saying? He said your security if you're constantly looking at your own heart, be careful because the heart is deceitful. Instead, look at Christ. Look at Christ. Look at everything that he is for you. Look at his beauty. Look at his excellencies. Look at his tenderness. Look at his love. And imagine that that is for you. That you're not outside of that. Salvation and the assurance of salvation are found in the same source. Look to Jesus. And once you're, you're saved, then you don't get down the road and say, all right, now I'm going to look at myself. No, you don't stop looking at Jesus. You never take your eye off of him. When Peter did that, he sank. And so I close with the words of this, this great hymn, in Christ alone, where we read these words, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me to look of the guilt within. Isn't that what he does? Look at that. Look at yourself. What a mess you are. Instead, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him who pardons me. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Father, for the beauty of these promises. We thank You for Jesus the lover of our souls, the salvation, our eternal salvation, our advocate, 
our propitiation. The one who satisfies the wrath of God. The one who satisfies everything that our heart was made to be satisfied by. Father, if there's anybody here today who doesn't have that assurance, maybe they're like I was Maybe there was a decision, there was a, a prayer, but there, there's not been any light to come in. No new affections for Jesus. No genuine transformation of the desires. Then I pray, Father, give them the courage just to say, you know what, I'm not sure that I ever really truly understood and believed I have a rational faith, but I don't have a relational faith. And then may the Holy Spirit bring conviction, but also healing and mercy and forgiveness. So I pray, Holy Spirit, do a work within us. Speak to us. Give us the assurance that we need or the conviction that we need. And do it all for the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.